1983, the level of Christian's work is greatly impeded by talking during lessons. He tends to rush his written work, which inevitably leads to many careless errors. Quality, not quantity, must be his goal. 1979, Christian has the ability to do better. Oral work is good, with very good questions and answers, many of them. <laughs> Unfortunately, this does not always come across in written work. Spelling mistakes are many and need careful attention. Christian reads well and has a nice smile. You, <laughs> you would not be allowed to say that these days. Christian's work is extremely erratic. <laughs> he has a tendency to rush and makes many careless mistakes. He needs to do some extremely careful revision before his coming exams. Too much haste and not enough speed, Christian. Take your time. Digest the information. Consider your answer carefully and then write, checking your work. You could do a lot better. Okay, a few more. <laughs> 1977, awarded to Christian, National Cycling Proficiency Certificate. 1978, Stage one, National Swimming Award. And my personal favorite, 1978, aged 10 and one month. Second place, egg and spoon race. <laughs> we all get reports and assessments all the time. Perhaps you've had an appraisal at work, a credit score, a grade on an essay, an endorsement or recommendation on LinkedIn. Perhaps you've got an air miles number, a Fitbit count, some workout metrics. I even took my car into the garage last month and the mechanic recorded a video to tell me how well my car was doing. It literally has a selfie with him and my wheels. <laughs> He's telling me like, how good the brake pads are and all that kind of stuff. We live in a world that constantly wants to give us the verdict about what's good, what's bad, and how we can do better with our lives. And today, as we've already heard, we're starting a new series looking at the report cards of some of the first churches in the Christian world. This series is called Red Letter Cities, and it's named first after the Bibles, red letter Bibles, which you may have seen, where the words spoken directly by Jesus are printed in red ink. And it's also named after the seven letters written to the seven churches in cities in Asia that are recorded in the second and third chapter of the book of Revelation, the very last book in the Christian Bible. 
Let's jump into Revelation chapter 2, and let's hear the words written to the church in Ephesus. You can follow on the screen. To the angel in the church of Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks amongst the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate the wicked people that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them to be false. You have persevered and endured many hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you've fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. The book of Revelation was written, uh, we're almost certain, by John the Apostle, who also wrote one of the Gospels. And he writes at a time where he's imprisoned on the island of Patmos, where he has this revelation that he writes down. John's thought to be uh, the only one of the 12 apostles who was not martyred for his faith. But John has not escaped his hard times. It's believed that close to his imprisonment on Patmos, he'd been boiled in water, beaten severely, and thrown from the tops of buildings. This is a man who's suffered much and laid down his life to follow Jesus. And now he's exiled because he's considered dangerous for his faith. And we're told on the Lord's Day, on Sunday, he has a vision of Jesus. And in this vision, he sees Jesus walking amongst seven stars and seven lampstands. And these become to him churches in Asia Minor, actual churches that he knew. And Jesus dictates to John a letter for each of these churches. Now, if you know anything about the book of Revelation, it's, it's hard to interpret. And I, I've got like four books on my shelf listing different interpretations of, of Revelation. One fave theme is, is the Antichrist. So I've got one that says it's Henry Kissinger. I've got another one that said it was Margaret Thatcher. She's, she's died now, so it kind of doesn't work. I'm sure there's probably some written about Trump or all sorts of other people. Read the book. It's fascinating. It's incredible, but it's very hard to interpret. Some think the seven churches represent seven different periods in history, and it's as if through these seven letters, Jesus is almost sort of mapping out over millennia the sweep and the span of what will happen in the church. Some have already happened, and perhaps some lie in the future. Either way, we do know that these letters were for actual real churches and that John will have written them down, and they will have been sent to the churches. And we also know from the introduction in Revelation in chapter 1, John writes this, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it. 
And so as we read it, it's like there's three perspectives that we can hold at the same time. The, the original people, those people in, these, in the church in Ephesus who originally heard these words written about them. There's also perhaps a prophetic overview where it speaks into something bigger and wider that maybe spans across another period or another time. And then also, as we just heard from that introduction, there's a, a personal benefit as well, that in, in reading this letter first addressed to somebody else, we might actually hear something that encourages or challenges us in our own personal walk with Jesus. The letters are each addressed to the angels of the church. The word angel is really just the word that means um, messenger. And some think it, it may literally refer to an angel, a, a, a spiritual being uh, of God that is uh, not visible to us, that is assigned to that church as if uh, perhaps the church has a guardian angel in, in some, who in some way we don't understand is part of the bringing in the message to the church. And so the, the letter is sort of addressed to or through that angel. Um, others think the word angel simply refers to the, the person that leads the church, like the church leader. And Luke Smith, who put this series together, said to me, Christian, like you're our church leader, so when you preach on this, you should dress up like an angel. Just to kind of like fulfill the prophecy. So I thought long and hard about it and um, decided not to do it. <laughs> the letters follow a common pattern, and you may have seen it as we um, read through it. There's some structure that repeats through each of the letters. It's the same. First, Jesus addresses the church. He identifies uh, himself to the church. And then he, he first speaks things that are praiseworthy about the church to them. Sadly, a few of the churches have nothing praiseworthy said to them in the introduction, which at one level is humorous, a bit like my 1979 PE report, which just said this, Christian attended regularly. <laughs> Given that attendance of school is mandatory, clearly there was a teacher that was struggling to find anything good to say about me. But on another level, think how terrible it might be, the thought that when Jesus considers a church, he has nothing good that he can say about it. The second part of the, uh, the letter has a challenge or an uh, uh, admission that's given to them. And all of the churches have something said to them a criticism, a challenge, something that they are admonished over. Um, none of these churches are perfect. Even the ones that are praiseworthy in some respects have hard challenges brought to them by Jesus. Although he loves them, he's not satisfied with who they are. He, he wants them to do more. He wants them to do better. And then lastly, he ends with a promise he tells them about something that could become more. And he ends it with these words. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. As an aside, it struck me that Jesus invented what in line management is called the praise sandwich. Have any of you received the praise sandwich or been taught how to do it in managing people? You start off with something really good like, 
Well done, Christian, for attending regularly. Then, then you hit them with the bad news. You are awful at sport. Uh, and then you give them something positive that could improve. If you try really hard, it is remotely possible you might get a little bit better. Or something like that. Jesus invented the praise sandwich. Well done, Jesus. Well, let's look at what Jesus wrote to this church in Ephesus. And he begins with his praise. He says, I know your deeds, your hard work and your perseverance. Is it incredible that Jesus knows the detail of that church's life? He sees it. He sees the deeds, the public deeds, but perhaps he sees the deeds done in private, the ones that don't get shouted out or recorded, the ones where nobody noticed what you did. But Jesus noticed it. It's quite literally written in his book. He sees it. He notices it. He sees the hard work. Maybe you're working really hard. Maybe the, what, what the things you're doing, it takes up a lot of time. And does anybody notice? Yeah, Jesus notices. He sees how many hours. He sees late nights. He sees the sacrifice, sacrificial giving of yourself. And he notices it. He also looks more deeply into our hearts and he, he sees the stubbornness you have to not give up, your perseverance. He notices it. He's, he's kind of wells up in pride as he sees it. He's urging to say those words, well done, I can, I can see it. I can see your brilliant deeds. I can see how hard you work. I can, I can see the perseverance of your heart. I notice it all. I notice it corporately and I notice it at the individual detail. I see what others see and I see what nobody sees. And Jesus also praises them that they were a church that was discerning. He says, I know you can't tolerate wicked men, though you've tested people who claim to be apostles but are not because you've found them to be false. He loves that they're committed to truth. They're committed to things being true. Not just going, hey, this is a church where anyone can say anything. Anyone can come in and do anything. Uh, he's, he's saying, well done. Well done for committing to what's true and taking that really seriously, recognizing that that's really important in the church. And lastly, he says, well done for persevering and enduring hardship for my name and not growing weary. Maybe you've experienced hardship. But I know in the global church, that's so often true. People who've been literally beaten, thrown off a building, boiled, burned, maimed, martyred, who've lost out massively in life, who've seen family members died, who've lost material possessions. People who have endured hardship because they were following Jesus. Jesus says, I keep the accounts. I keep the final accounts. I see what was given. I see the cost. And I praise you for it. Next, he challenges them. As praiseworthy as those things are, he has a challenge for Ephesus. And he says this, I hold this against you. You've forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you've fallen. Repent and do the things at first. If you do not repent, I'll come and I'll remove 
your lampstand from you. It must be really hard for them to hear this because he's saying, you're doing really well in your deed, but you've forgotten something more important, which is your heart love for me. The thing that began it all in the first place. You didn't do deeds to get into following me. You opened your heart. You loved Jesus. You loved God. And then out of that, your actions followed. And he's saying almost as if, it's as if you've, you've pressed on somehow and you've got so caught up in, in brilliant things, but you've lost something of the heartfelt zeal that really is the most important thing. Notice how strong Jesus is. I kind of picture him almost eyeballing us right up close with this church and he's saying, repent, which literally means change your mind now. And then he almost threatens them. He says, if you don't, I will come and take the lampstand and remove it. And and we think probably what that means is the lampstand is like the permission from God for the church to exist. You see, we don't, the church does not belong to us. It, it's not our club. Um, even though we might plant a church or we might you know, start a meeting and it sort of comes out of human effort, in reality, it has to come because God is pleased to do it. And in this picture, it's as if the lampstand symbolizes God saying, I own that church. I give it permission to be and I exercise my authority over it. And scary Jesus is up close, looking in them in the eye, saying, do something about this, or I'll take that lampstand, and it'll be taken away. And it doesn't matter what we think. We can't have a meeting and all vote, you know, hands up those who think we keep the lampstand. It's, it's irrelevant. Jesus is in charge. He's the one that walks amongst the stars. He commands these angels. He put the lampstand there. He made the lampstand. He can take it away. He is incredibly fierce with them. And then lastly, he offers them a promise. He says, you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. And the Nicolaitans, we think, were... were, um, proposing like a, a corrupt form of following Jesus. Uh, their message went something like this. Uh, Jesus has got lots of grace for you. God loves to forgive you. God's patient and kind and loving. So you can live your life however you like because he'll just keep on forgiving you. He'll keep on being kind. He'll keep on being gracious. And in a way, it's true, but in another way, it's an absolutely fake message. It's a total bogus proposition about how a person might follow Jesus. And notice what Jesus says. He says, you hate this, well done. He says, I hate it. Can you picture Jesus saying that? 
Does that mess up our view of Jesus? You know, Jesus who finds me parking spaces when I send an emergency prayer because I really need to get there and meet a friend. Or, you know, oh, I'm, I'm not feeling very well, Jesus. You know, you know, the sort of warm, fluffy, friendly, would never upset anyone. You know, could introduce him to your granny. It would be totally safe. Never embarrass you, Jesus. This is a guy who might walk into a room and say, can I just tell everyone, I hate this. Can you picture him saying it? Can you see how powerful this revelation of Jesus is, that he's this strong character? Well, there were two things that jumped out at me as I read this passage. And the the first was this. How important is church to Jesus? The thing, of course, to notice is the letters are written, first and foremost, to the whole church. We probably individualize our faith. We probably imagine like, oh, it's like a message just for me. I'll just like rub out the thing and put my name to Christian. Well done. You know, we we individualize it. And that's kind of okay as long as we understand it was first and foremost a letter to a company of people. No one was a spectator. Nobody was sitting there going, yeah, they should really sort that out. It was an us and a we. It was a letter to a whole church. There's something in our sort of consumeristic age where we individualize our experience of church and we think of it as something someone else should do. Yeah, the angels should really sort that out, otherwise I'll just find another church to be in. Now Jesus is saying, I see you all, I see everyone. I'm going to write to you a message that applies to all of you. Jesus loves to work with groups of people. He works with us as individuals in our own lives. Of course he does. But he also has a story that catches whole groups of people together. And the word he likes to use for that is church. Jesus walks amongst these churches. He sees their deeds. He looks. He observes. He knows what we're doing as G2. He's got an opinion about 24-3 prayer and baptism and who didn't get spoken to today as they came into the service and who's feeling loved and who's not. He, he sees everything and he has an opinion about our church. He knows our deeds. He sees the detail. He sees the action. He sees people. He can say, well done. He can say, I hate that. I hate it. And the second thing that jumped out at me was Jesus Whatever you make of the book of Revelation, and if you haven't read it, read it, definitely read it, for all of its complexity and imagery, and as, it, as the chapters unfold, it gets harder and harder. Eventually, you know, there's one point where Jesus turns up in a white tracksuit with a tax tattoo on his leg and a sword coming out of his mouth to have a fight with the devil over death, and there's a choir singing that he has the victory. And, I mean... It's hard to do a Bible study on this book, okay? It's hard to be like, what practical things have we learned from this passage? Like, I don't know, get a tattoo. Uh, it's <laughs> but this book is overflowing with Jesus. In the first two chapters alone, there are more than 20 references or descriptions of Jesus. Even like the ones we've looked at, someone who can hate something. But he's like the Alpha and the Omega. He's the first and the last. He's the bright morning star. He's the word of God. He's the Lamb of God. He's the truth. He's he's got the sword of the word of the Spirit in his mouth. Um, 
more than 20, just in the first chapter. In the whole book, more than 100 descriptives of Jesus. Far from being one of the most, most obscure books in the Bible, it's actually one of those that most richly tells us who Jesus is and what he's like. Mike Bickles said this, Revelation is less about a plan and more about a man, Jesus. And I put it to you, the church today has a diminished view of Jesus. Our Jesus is far too soft and cuddly and middle class and boring. We need the Jesus that's talked about here with the swords and the tattoos and the love and the hate all mixed in together because that's who he is. That's the real manifestation of who he is. We're going to talk in a minute, and I, uh, but I want to give you some reflections, some things that jumped out at me as I uh, looked through this book. And to help you, they all begin with R, okay? R. The first R is remember. And in the letter they're told, remember the works that you used to do and do them again. Do you need to be freshly foolish in your following of Jesus? Yeah, I remember the time when I was a student and seven of us crammed in a telephone box and we had Holy Communion with Diet Coke and a Mars bar and we prayed for someone who was sick and uh, I felt God called me to go and work for a church. I remember when I was stupid like that. Please don't do that because you shouldn't have Holy Communion. But no, okay. <laughs> I remember my friend Mark who was born blind in one eye and we'd prayed for him so many times and he'd be like, oh, please don't pray for me again. And I remember when one of my friends said, let's just pray for Mark again. Let's pray for him again. So we prayed for Mark again and he instantly saw out of the eye that he couldn't see of. In fact, he was so excited, he got thrown out of the Christian Union for being, like, too expressive. Because he was just, like, understandably happy that he got healed by God. I remember one of the first churches I went to where it just happened to be a long way away, and I traveled three hours to get there on Sunday, and then three hours to come back. But it was because I, I just loved it and enjoyed it so much, I thought nothing of doing that. I just thought... Of course, you just travel the distance to get to the church that you want to go to. Or my friends Tim, Dave, and Mike, and when we'd hear about somebody that needed prayer, we'd, we'd stay up half the night or all the night praying, partly because we were students, and so we had different things to do in the morning. No offense if you're a student, by the way, you're brilliant. But, but partly because we were just foolish for Jesus, and we had no reputation to worry about losing. We were just willing to go for it. I remember when um, the offering used to come down, and that was back in the day when we dealt with cash, and I decided I would just always empty my wallet into the offering. And so I'd just empty the wallet, and sometimes it'd be like four pence, and sometimes there'd be a lot more money. And then usually I'd get, leave church and then realize, oh, darn it, no bus fare again. <laughs> Got to walk back to the university. But I was like a stupid but also passionate because I had a first love for Jesus. So remember, think back. Was there a time when you were more zealous, more passionate, more enthusiastic? Do you feel like you've sort of grown up? Because maybe you've grown up in the wrong way and you need to rekindle some of that passion. The second R is to repent. It's named in this letter. We need to be those that are willing to change our mind, to be convicted and go, do you know what? That's not right. I'm going to change my mind on that. I'm going to do something different.
different. And the good news is he, he is a forgiver. He is gracious. He's loving and kind. He loves it when we repent from going the wrong way or not the best way to go towards the right way. And like these churches, none of us has no repenting to do. None of us are like, oh, yeah, 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 those that should repent should definitely repent. All of us have things that God might convict us about and say, hey, that could improve, that needs to change. I hate that, don't do that. And Jesus speaks to these churches and tells them to repent. And the third R is restore. Restore the things that you used to do. Like the Ephesians, they got busy serving God and they forgot to love God and they needed to restore their love of God. God was more interested in their love than their many deeds. Maybe we need to restore things in our lives. As we end, I wonder if I can read this passage to you again, but in the words that Eugene Peterson uses. Sometimes he just turns the phrase slightly differently. And let me remind you of what the introduction said, which was this. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. So that's me. Blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what's written on it. It may help you just to close your eyes or just to listen, but here's what he says. I see right through your work. You have a reputation for vigor and zest, but you're dead, stone dead. Up on your feet, take a deep breath. Maybe there's life in you yet, but I wouldn't know it by looking at your busy work. Nothing of God's work has been completed. Your condition is desperate. Think of the gift that you once had in your hands, the message you heard with your ears. Grasp it again and turn back to God. If you pull the covers back over your head and sleep on, oblivious to God, I'll return when you least expect it. Break into your life like a thief in the night. You've still got a few followers of Jesus Jesus in Sardis who haven't ruined themselves wallowing in the muck of the ways of the world. They'll walk with me on parade. They've proven their worth. Conquerors will march in the victory parade. Their name's indelible in the book of life. I'll lead them up and present them by name to my father and his angels. Are your ears awake? Listen to the word. The spirit is blowing through the churches. Amen.